0: Welcome to the Masters in Psychology Podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Sakira Hudson to the show. Dr. Hudson is an assistant professor at University of California, Berkeley, Haas School of Business, in the management of organizations group. She completed her doctorate in social psychology from Harvard University, and she was an NSF postdoctoral fellow in psychology at Yale University. Today, we will learn more about her academic and professional journey, more about her role as assistant professor at UC Berkeley, and hear her advice for those interested in the field of social psychology. Dr. Hudson, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Well, I'm glad that you took the time out of your schedule to talk with us. I'm really excited. One of the fun things for me is doing the research on all my guests. And you have a a, varied, uh, a very interesting and a varied um, background as well. And so I wanted to start off. Usually we talk about your undergrad and then your graduate and then what you're doing now. So I see that you received your bachelor's degree in biology and psychology at Williams College. First of all, tell us more about your undergraduate experiences and what first sparked your interest in psychology.
1: Sure. So I went to Williams College, which is a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts. I honestly didn't know anything about undergrad. So I'm first gen. And I ended up going to Williams because there was somebody in the admissions office who was from the Albany area. So uh, upstate New York and found me. She's like, hey, how about you check out Williams? Um, and so that is how I ended up visiting Williams. I fell in love with it. I was actually supposed to go start my undergrad at Harvard. I actually matriculated at Harvard before switching over to Williams. So we can talk about the differences between a Slack <laughs> and an R1 uh, if you want to. But when I came into Williams, I knew I wanted to be a biology major. I took essentially three years of biology in, in high school and middle school, um, and so. I wanted to be a STEM major. And as a black woman, it was important for me to do STEM. And so I also thought psychology was what people did when they couldn't hack it in the sciences. So I was like, no, psychology is for (laughs) those who are not very good at science. And so sophomore spring, I needed to take a fourth course. I like, yeah, let me go take this easy psych class that everyone is uh, talking about. And I was floored. I fell in love with psychology because it was the study of social issues using the scientific method. And that blew my mind. It just, it, it truly, truly did. At the time that I was studying this organism called Tetrahymena thermophila that I couldn't see, I was pipetting things in the lab by myself. I'm like, this is not very interesting. But this whole psychology thing is. Um, and my intro to psychology was taught in a perhaps a unique way, it was taught by five professors, each in their own discipline. So, you know, the professor who was the cognitive psychologist taught the cognitive classes and the neuroscientist taught the neuroscience classes. So we were taught by people who were really passionate about the material that they were engaging with, making everything really engaging. And our labs that we had to do, we replicated um, famous experiments. So in the cognitive psych class, we replicated the Stroop task and we had to write about it. In the social psych class, we uh, did the, um, I forget the name of the effect, but it's the expert effect that, you know, that's why, uh, what was his name? Who used to do Jeopardy? That's why he seemed so smart, but he had all the answers. So right. it was smart. So anyway, so that's how I got started in psychology. Um, I was torn between cognitive and social And over time, I realized that all the questions that I was asking in other disciplines that weren't social always brought social into play. So it was cognitive stuff. We learned about the the psychology of learning. And I kept asking, wait, does this differ by race? Does this differ by socioeconomic status? Which are very social questions. And so that's when I realized I wanted to be in social psychology. I did a thesis, I had a thesis lined up in biology, switched it over to psych. um, And I did a summer program at, actually, at UC Berkeley. So, UC Berkeley is a uh, the birth of my my uh, psych interest. But that was my time in undergrad in terms of psychology.
0: That's a nice summary. And it's uh, Alex Trebek is who you were trying to think of. Thank you. And, and that expert bias comes into play. And I'm glad that you uh, you were blown away because a lot of people, whenever they think of psychology, what do they think of? They think of somebody lying down in a bed talking to a psychologist, and it's more than just that. You're actually incorporating the scientific method to validate your results. And a lot of people think, well, if it's not validated, then it's not good science. Well, it's actually good if you validate or not validate because it opens up the doors for other areas of study. So it's it's fun that you uh, kind of give us that recap you then attended Harvard University for your doctorate. You earned your PhD, as I mentioned, in social psychology. There are many other schools in Massachusetts that offer graduate degrees in psychology. So what drew you to Harvard?
1: What drew me to Harvard? So one thing I had to remember when it comes to picking graduate programs is that is different than undergrad. And part of that is uh, when you're picking a program for Graduate school is really about the fit with your advisor, and so uh, I wanted to study the like the psychology of identities as social hierarchies, which meant that I could work with people who studied power and hierarchy. I could work with people who studied intergroup relations, but my job was to try to combine combine both of them, and so. The place that I actually really wanted to go to, again, ironically, was to work with uh, Keltner, Professor Keltner at UC Berkeley, who studied power. Um, But he uh, changed his research interests to study awe. And so I was like, well, guess I'm not going to go there. Um, And so of all the the people I could work with, uh, Dr. Jim Sedanius who uh, passed away of uh, two years ago. Um, but he was one of the only people who studied what I wanted to study. So his theory, social dominance theory, combined this idea of power and hierarchy with intergroup relations. And that's what I wanted to do. And so he was honestly the best fit for me, uh, but it also came down to, if we're gonna be super transparent, it's also about resources. So I um, I applied to 12, no, I applied to 18 PhD programs, I got interviews at 12. I declined four interviews because I actually didn't have the time to go on all of them. Uh, So I interviewed at eight places, got into all eight, and then a ninth uh, accepted me uh, without having to interview. So I had nine places uh, that I could could have gone to and Harvard gave me some of the most money. It gave me some of the best resources. And it also has name recognition. And as somebody who does not necessarily know all the ins and outs of academia. I felt like if I went to a place like that, some of these things would resolve itself for me because I don't have to necessarily know some people. I might get some opportunities just because I went to Harvard. So it was simultaneously the fact that my grad advisor was one of the better fits for me in terms of my research interests, but also Harvard has a lot of resources um, and and money honestly, and that that also mattered to me. Also, I can't drive. So I still don't know how to drive. I know it's terrible. I'm almost 35. don't <laughs> not know how to drive. And I could get around Boston just fine without a
0: car. Well, all of those factors come into play and, and a lot of our audience members think about that you know do I want to be close to home? Do I want to be far away? Do I want to have a car? do I you know is it is it, uh, is it right fit for me and my uh, you know areas of study? So I know you mentioned Dr. Uh, Jim Sedonis Donius Genius. Danius, thank you. You also completed your PhD under the guidance of two other doctors, Dr. Mazarin Banaji and Dr. Mina Sikari. Is that correct? Shikara. Shikara, Thank you. And so I I know name recognition the school but also name recognition for the people that are going to be your advisors also come into play so everybody questions uh, how do i decide on which way where to go which program and a lot of times it comes down to what's the area of study what do you want to do after you graduate uh who is in the field who is an expert in that area of study And then all these other factors come into play. Do you have funding? You know, Uh, do you have all all these resources available and the support that you need um, when you're at that school? Any other thoughts or ideas or advice for people who are kind of going through that process right now of deciding, hey, I know that I want to go to psychology. I want to go to a psychology program. I'm just not sure which program or school to attend. Any other advice for them?
1: Yes, so... One, uh, you know, you mentioned my other advisors and they're all phenomenal, um, but they also covered each other's weaknesses. So one important thing is that you're not going to get everything from one person and you're actually not going to get everything you need from one place. And I don't think you should. And so thinking about the program and the institution holistically might help you figure out where you can thrive by sort of putting different things together. So two of my advisors, Jim and Mazarin are older, like they are senior people. And so they have their own uh, pros and cons, but Mina was pre-tenure. And so thinking about, you know, the older faculty being perhaps a little slower because they're really grappling with big deep questions and they're not in any hurry because they're already full professors. Mina wanted to get tenure. So she met with me much more frequently, was in like the nitty gritty with me. And so if I had only one, I would you know, have some pros, but still some cons, but bridging these two or these three um, advisors together meant I got the best of all worlds. Part of the reason why I also chose Boston is because I think Boston has something like 70 colleges and universities in the greater Boston area. It's a really large concentration of scholars. And so I spent a good chunk of my time actually at Tufts uh, in their psych department because they were much more focused on the intergroup relations aspect that I got a little bit at Harvard but not nearly as much as I wanted to. And so I spent a ton of time there. I spent a ton of time at the Harvard Kennedy School because they gave me that like practical aspect of my work that I really wanted. So I study intersectionality as well. And the sec department, There wasn't really anyone studying that. But when I went to the Kennedy School, several people were like, yes, intersectionality is such a hot topic. Let's talk about it. And so if I were only thinking about what the Harvard Psych Department could get me, I might feel like maybe this is not the best fit for me because it doesn't have these things. But there are easily accessible ways that I could get the things that the Harvard Psych Department wasn't very strong in. And then holistically, I have a really strong package to support me in doing the work that I wanted to do. So just remembering that you're not actually going to get everything from one person, one place, and you shouldn't think that way. uh, And sort of sort of create the experience that you want. You have a lot more agency in graduate school than I think people believe.
0: That's a very good reminder because you when I went through graduate school, I just looked at the school and my advisor. I didn't really look at the other people, the other experts in their field. Just like you mentioned your intro to psych, that what a great approach having experts in each of the different branches or fields of psychology. And that kind of brings up my next question here. Uh, Many people wonder how do you decide which branch or field of psychology you are interested in? Or does it kind of, based on your interests, you find yourself in that area? So talk to me, how did you decide or find yourself in the area of social psychology?
1: Great question. So I honestly believe that a lot of these fields of psychology are blending. Um, you know, they, they're they merging together uh, to... To say, are, am I a developmental psychologist? Am I a social developmental psychologist? Am I a, a cognitive developmental? Like, where do you get these these different, um, you know, how, how do you figure that out? And to me, it always comes down to methods, theories, and frames of reference. So there might just be certain things that you're really drawn to do. I love interviewing. That's not true for me. But let's just say it. Uh, I love doing qualitative work. There are certain fields that are stronger in qualitative methods than others. And so if that's the thing that you're drawn to, that might be a way of narrowing down your, your fields. I love doing experiments. So that's true of Kira. Kira loves doing experiments. And so thinking about the types of experiments that I love to do, if I was a neuroscientist, You can do some experiments, but you're only going to have like five subjects because of how expensive each one of them are. And that's just not the way that my, my brain works. Also thinking about what are the types of questions that get you going and learning to abstract up. So in general, if there's any like one skill that I wish everyone could practice is the ability to abstract up. So when I was asking what gets me going, why do I like this paper? What are the ways that I want to extend this paper? I realized they're all social questions. Yes, I actually do like developmental work and I even have some developmental papers, but those developmental papers always take a social approach. It's how does race impact this? How do children come to understand race? That was my, um, my graduate NSF proposal, which is how do children learn social hierarchies? So yes, that could be a developmental question, but I realized I'm not really interested in the developmental question for development sake. I'm interested in it from a more social identity perspective. And so I think understanding the different methods in each of these fields, like what are the main methods? What methods sort of, you know, appeal to you? And what are the broad questions that get you going? will at least help you narrow it down from the 20 different fields to probably about four, three or four, and then from there, it's about finding advisors that give you the best, the best angle. So could I have been a very happy, probably cognitive psychology? Probably, uh, but that actually wouldn't be as good of a fit for me than if I went to sociology because the types of questions that I wanna ask are much more social in nature. So if I had to pick another field, I probably would be a sociologist that, do, that does experiments rather than any other discipline of, of psychology.
0: Well, thank you for that answer. And if you look at Google Scholar, you'll look at some of your um, uh, research studies, and especially even the ones from last year and this year, they all are dealing with that social aspect of psychology as well, and looking at that intersection. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. You mentioned one of the key, um, probably skills that you would recommend somebody acquire or develop is that abstract up. Are there any other qualities or skills that you believe are important for psychology students to aspire if they do want to work in the field of social psychology?
1: Uh, I would say it's just the, the ability to be a critical but constructive thinker. Mm-hmm. I think when we're in classes, you know, it tends to be pick apart this article, how, you know, all the ways that this article failed versus what are all the ways this article failed? did a good thing or, you know, actually advanced the field or what would you do better? You know, sometimes people will say, well, what about race? And then I, you know, my students will say that and I'll ask them back, well, what about race? And what they've learned is race probably matters, but not the why. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, thinking about how to be constructive, the best way to do that is I think to learn the foundational theories in any particular field, because when you know the foundational theories you are able to figure out, A, there are like modes of thinking that sort of underlie all these different, um, you know, these different bricks in a particular field that are adding up to our collective wall of knowledge. Um, But then you're able, better able to understand the holes, better able to understand where you want to intervene, and also better able to have conversations with people. And so I think when I interviewed for grad school, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but you know, I, I did pretty well on, on the grad market. And I think one of the things that helped me stand out is that I was able to engage with almost anybody's research. Hierarchy is pretty broad, so that also helped me. But in general, if someone would have talk to me about, you know, they study close relationships. I'm like, yeah, how does, you know, different cultures impact how well you can form a close relationship? How does intimacy change that? And so I was able to have a conversation with somebody about their work. Because I, I had a grounding where I was that allowed me to reach out um, and form connections with other other people. And that's what I think academia is all about. It's about creating new knowledge, finding new um, you know intersections. And the, the more grounded you are in your intersection, the easier it is, I think, to, to form other, other connections. And I don't think that that's a skill that we explicitly tell people to practice. It's get research experience. And I'm like, that's really important but why are you getting that research experience? What research experience will actually propel you to help you be successful in grad school? I think this like abstract synthesis analysis bit uh, is, is really important. And so I try to have my RAs do this. So every RA who's ever worked with me has to do some sort of literature search. But then it's like, you do this literature search, that's great, now you're gonna write a literature review. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to find the holes. Now you got to put these things together. you got all these papers. How do they relate to one another? And sometimes they're like, well, they relate. Here's this group and here's that group. And I'm like, okay, great. Organize them in a different way. And they're like, wait, what do you mean organize them in a different way? It's like, yes, you organize them with stereotypes and attitudes. But now you can also organize them by subgroups. You can also organize them by country. You can also, you know, and so thinking of this this flexible way of taking the same knowledge and recombining them, practicing that, I think, uh, is one way to sort of get at this abstract synthesis bit that I think is really important.
0: Literature review and uh, when I was going through meta-analysis and looking at the meta-research and combining all of it, and uh, as you said, finding the holes or finding an area or niche that nobody has uncovered yet is uh, uh, very beneficial as well, because you could create that niche for yourself and become the expert in that niche as well. So I know you already gave us a good summary of um, how many schools you applied to. In hindsight, would you do anything different in terms of the process related to searching for graduate schools and programs, or uh, would you do anything different during those interviews?
1: Great question. So I there's one thing I, w- I would do differently. So I almost didn't go into academia. And part of that was because uh, I did this program called Institute for Recruitment of Teachers, which is a, I don't know if you've heard of this program, but it's a phenomenal program that helps um, minoritized scholars get into either K through 12 programs or PhD programs. And so I forget how I found out about IRT, But uh, I got into, they have a summer program, and then they have sort of like a year-long program. If you do the summer program, you get into the year-long program, but not necessarily vice versa. So I did the summer program, and they had an admissions fair where they brought in admissions officers from the PhD programs from different schools in their consortium to come. Oh, I should say that if you do the summer program, you get GRE help, which was great. Uh, They also help read over all your application materials. They give you feedback. Uh, and um, the fees to apply to the consortium schools are free. And so that was a big, that's a really big, big, big thing. And that's true if you do the broader program or the and or the summer program. So I did IRT, uh the 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 year during the year after I graduated. <laughs> yes, IRT, yes. Uh, no, wait, no. Wait, it's in Andover. You have to, if you click the program website. And you'll actually go to the actual website. This is probably, go. yeah. Showcasing the opportunity. Yes. So this is this is IRT. Uh, absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal program. Um, and so I did IRT during the summer after my senior year. So I graduated, did IRT. I had a plan to take a year off and apply the fall after my uh, senior year and go into grad school. And so I remember going to the admissions fair and i was really excited because it was this person from stanford stanford was my number one school really pumped and the admissions officer and i don't think he meant to be so dismissive um but what he was waiting for me because my thesis advisor went to stanford for her phd so he he was kind of waiting for me and then he looked at my cv and completely trashed it he's like why did not you work with steve fine at williams and i was like well i didn't work with him (laughs) i just i just wasn't something i did Um, and he's like, yeah, you're not ready for grad school. Like, this is just not, not for you. And I was devastated and I dropped out of the program. So I dropped out of the program based on one person's advice, not even advice. You know, again, he was very dismissive of me. And I, at that point, I was aimless. I was living in Virginia. I was working uh, at Macy's selling fine jewelry for less than part-time and I had no direction I had no idea what I was doing because my whole plan was completely derailed and so I happened to apply to some lab manager positions um and I I didn't get to the one at Berkeley I got to the final round to work with Dana Carney at Berkeley hope you're seeing a theme that Berkeley has rejected me multiple times
0: right right anyway
1: <laughs> but now now I'm there so it's all good but um <laughs> I ended up working at UCLA with a phenomenal woman named Janessa Shapiro, uh, who also uh, passed away from breast cancer. Um, And she told me, she was like, Kira, I would have admitted you, like, you are absolutely ready to go to grad school. Like, what are you talking about? And I believe her uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, And so it was like, I let this one person's piece of advice completely derail my career. Um, And it just so happens that Janessa decided to. To take a chance on me and let me be her lab manager, but she was my final shot. Like I applied to three lab manager positions. She was the last one. And I remember pacing in the library, because I I needed Wi-Fi. And I was pacing the library like hoping, like, please, hopefully this works out. Hopefully this works out. And it didn't, or it, it, it did, but it almost didn't. Um, and so just thinking about what does it mean to get multiple people's advice, to not just take one person's perspective and to also know yourself, like I thought I was ready for grad school. And honestly, everything that I did as a lab manager made me realize I absolutely was ready to go to grad school just from you know my ability to sit in graduate level classes. And I think do just as well as the third or fourth years that were there. Uh, and so in some ways that, that gap was helpful for me because it allowed me to go to grad school, which a much like a really realistic understanding of grad school and knowing I could do it, but I was ready initially and some man who only saw me based on my CV should not have been able to tell me that. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that's one thing. If I could do it over, I, I, I just would have asked more people. <laughs> I wouldn't have <laughs> dropped out of IRT. But IRT was actually very, thankfully, they actually let me rejoin when I was ready to apply two years later. So I applied to 18 schools, but I think I only paid for three of them. So mm-hmm. IRT covered 12. There was this Committee consortium for something, something like CICC, something of Midwestern schools that if you had hardships, they would pay for application fees. So they covered a lot of them. And then if you do a summer program, oftentimes when you apply to that school, they'll pay for your application. So Berkeley's summer research program that I did uh, before my senior year in, in college, they paid for my application fee to Berkeley. And so that's how I applied to 18 schools, but only pay for three of them because application fees are really expensive. and mm-hmm. uh, They can range anywhere between 25. Well, this was back in the day, 25 to, you know, a hundred dollars. I have no idea what the cost is now.
0: Well, you were actually, you, you thankfully got that lab manager position at UCLA and you were there for two years and six months. And then after that, you did your postdoctoral uh, um candidacy and your work at Yale University and that wait, wait, was
1: awesome. I did my lab manager before I went to grad school.
0: Okay so I see on LinkedIn you were at lab manager from 2012 to 2014. Yes and then UCLA. Uh, yeah and then that, that was at UCLA yes directly UCLA. and then you did your postdoctoral you were a post postdoctoral associate Yale University full-time from May of 2020 through July of 2022. So Uh, You were there for also two years, three months, and now you are back. What a a nice way to circle back to UC Berkeley. And you actually are, as I said, in the Haas School of Business and the Management of Organizations group. You've been there a little bit over a year. So tell us briefly about how many different universities you applied to and when did you know that you wanted to become an assistant professor?
1: Oh, I knew I wanted to be an assistant professor. When I became a lab manager, I was like, "Yes, okay. this is definitely something, something I want to do. Um, I, how many schools did I applied to in terms of faculty jobs? So right. applying to faculty jobs is a lot. Um, you should i you should plan not to do anything for those six months. Nothing. um, because you're either practicing your talk, you are sitting with anxiety, you're you're interviewing like it's 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 a lot i actually could answer that question very directly um i'm like what was my job market i had a whole google spreadsheet i I like to be organized so Mm -hmm. according to the spreadsheet i applied to 58 schools across both psych departments public policy schools and business schools um in terms of Uh, I could probably aggregate this. i got I got several round ones that I never got called back for. Um, it ended up coming down to I think I had I ended up having eight offers across both psych, um public policy and business, but I w- actually wasn't done with the market. So I actually um withdrew my applications from a few schools that might have worked out, might have not, you know, it's it's a little bit unclear. But when it came down to what were the schools that I was really considering, one school was uh, UC Davis and their psych department. Vanderbilt's education school that also happens to have a psychology department within it. Go figure. That's something I learned. There's a lot of psychologists in education schools and vice versa. Um, uh, So that, that was another psych department and also Boston College. I love Boston College. Okay, maybe there were three psych departments that I was like really considering. And then it was, I got a job at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, and then I got the job at, at UC Berkeley. And so there was a lot of things that went into my decision. And one of the biggest cleavages between those different schools is professional, non-professional. So psych departments where I got my PhD. That is what I'm used to. I know exactly how to teach in that environment. Teaching in a professional school would it, it's it's a learning experience. So that was uh one one thing I had to consider. Another thing I I had to consider was also the the research environment. So I had mentioned that I spent a lot of time at the Kennedy School because the work that I wanted to do was inherently interdisciplinary and I find that professional schools are interdisciplinary. You're going to meet an economist and a sociologist and a historian and a legal scholar person who all study race, for example. Mm-hmm. And getting all those different perspectives is exactly what my mind uh, loved and wanted. Whereas in the psych department, you kind of have the same thing, but it's really narrow. It's all within the psych department. So you might have someone who studies race, but they're a developmental psychologist versus a social psychologist. You're not going to get the breadth of like thought. Um, so that was a, another big cleavage between the between the schools. Um, Another thing is just the timing of things. So I had to let go of one of my favorite offers, not because I, I wasn't seriously considering it, but because they had a different timeline than the other schools. And so it was like, I'm still not done interviewing. Am I going to let go of this guaranteed thing because I'm hoping for something afterwards that ended up happening? And that was that was really devastating. Uh, and then I'm not going to talk about money because that is a very clear difference between all those schools. Uh and if you haven't already, all salaries, at least in California, are public knowledge. So if you are at all curious about the differences in salaries between uh, psychology, public policy, and business, pick some scholars in each of those areas, look them up on transparentcalifornia.com, and you'll learn a lot. That's all I'll say about, about salary. But the the last thing I'll say that's a big difference is about research funds. So psychology departments are notorious for giving startups. They're like, here's a pot of money and, you know, do great scholarship with it. And then we're going to launch you to to get additional grants. Most professional programs don't do it that way. They either Mm -hmm. don't give startups at all or the way that a lot of business schools will do it is that they'll give you a set amount of money each year and it just annually replenishes. So Mm -hmm. different models, a lot of different things to consider. But it sort of came down for me um, for there are many, many factors. But at the end of the day, uh, my wife and I visited Berkeley and she looked at me when we were all done with the the visit and she goes, Kira, let's have an adventure. And I was like, let's have an adventure. So we ended up going to Berkeley uh, in part because all of our families on the East Coast. If we were to be on the West Coast, this is the time to do it. We don't have kids. This is at the beginning of my career. I've wanted to be at Berkeley for quite some time. All those different times I tried to be at Berkeley, uh, the, the people I looked up to in terms of my research were there. And so I'm like, yeah, this is definitely a place that I feel like if I don't start my, my career here, I will regret it for the rest of my life. So that is a really long-winded way of me saying why, why UC Berkeley uh, and I avoided very deliberately. <laughs> <talk>. <laughs>
0: No problem no problem I picked up on that right away and you actually answered partially my next question how was it moving from the east coast to the west coast well you you had the adventure and you're still having the adventure because you just finished your first year as an assistant professor at uh, UC Berkeley as well anything else come uh, into mind when you think okay what what were some of the challenges at good or bad that you've experienced moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, and there's culture differences there right away when you have that. So anything else comes to mind?
1: Three-hour time difference doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot because things don't line up. So, you know, let's just say you go to work, get up at 5.30, get home by 6.30, eat, 7 o'clock, you're like, cool, ready to talk to people. It is 10 o'clock, back at home. And not to say that people are not really, you know, want to talk to you at ten o'clock, but they're not. They don't want to talk to you at ten o'clock. Um, or I would talk to my mom when I walk my dogs, and I walk my dogs at particular times. It didn't line up anymore the way that right. it used to. And so having to come up with new systems just to connect with the people that I love uh, was was really difficult. Um, California is also not interconnected in the way that the east coast is so again I don't drive so hopping on the Amtrak to go from Boston to New York easy peasy Boston to New Haven easy New Haven to Philly like thinking about all of the cities that are right on the coast they're all connected through Amtrak very easy Amtrak sucks in California just not good so I haven't felt the the ease of you know it's and it's all one state California is long it is mm-hmm. like 14 hours I think from tip to tip that is a long time to be in the same state so that are some 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 definite difficulties some of the benefits it is 65 year round in the bay mm-hmm. so it doesn't really it doesn't rain too frequently you know I think a lot of people would love this weather it's like perpetual fall weather, but like early fall. And that's lovely. I like wine. There's wine everywhere. Sure. I, I've been enjoying <laughs> that. <laughs> um it's very, it's very naturey. Um and so I I I've definitely appreciated appreciated that aspect. And honestly, in some ways, we've maybe seen our families more by moving to the Bay because we're very deliberate in we yes, we're going to go for this thing because we don't have the the serendipitous, uh, connections, but that means that we've, we're always sort of building, building it out. Uh, and we haven't used this perk, but we're really close, really close to Hawaii. So, uh, you know, it's like six hours instead of 12.
0: There you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's definitely uh, a culture shock. Um, it's definitely, definitely, uh, yeah. I'll say that.
0: Well, and, and a good, um, kind of transition to talking about Now you have one year under your belt teaching at UC Berkeley. What were some of the most um, challenging aspects of kind of changing or transitioning from this idea of being a student, grad student, now I have my uh, PhD, uh, applying to all these different uh, schools for your professorship, for, you know, your academic, uh, your first academic position. Uh, What was some of the most, what were some of the most challenging aspects of kind of changing your frame of mind and now becoming that assistant professor?
1: Honestly, it was the fact that I can't say what I, whatever I want to say anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: I I would say I'm a pretty outspoken person. Um, And whenever I would talk, I mean, I've always been careful about, about what I say, but Now it's coming from a place of authority, you know, and Mm -hmm. I study hierarchy. So it's definitely like, huh, I have to pay attention to that so much more now. um, You know, I have to think about, well, who are all the people who might hear this and either try to implement this, this advice that I'm giving that, you know, now it's like, oh, well, Kira, the faculty member is saying this versus Kira, the random grad student who I, you know, don't have to necessarily... (laughs) That's what I listened to. So that was an adjustment. It was also an adjustment to realize that I now have to balance other people's careers. So I already have three graduate students and one um, is coming on um, this year. And I love mentorship. Absolutely love mentorship. Always love mentorship. But when you mentor RAs, you know, their career is not solely in your hands. You know, they, they, they got to get good grades. Like they got to get a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and you know, like the time that you they spend with you and you write their letter of recommendation is a piece of the puzzle, but it's not most of the puzzle. But now I've got folks who who are here to learn and I'm going to teach, but it's over like a five year span. So that by the end of this five years that they feel equipped to not only be productive in their own right, but then also teach and mentor themselves. So balancing what I need to do for me and what I what's best for them is attention that of course makes sense because you know I got mentored before, but it was definitely, definitely a big, a big adjustment. And then the whole tenure clock of thinking now that now the clock is ticking and I don't, I don't, I've never really felt that clock before. Because you know, if you need a, an extra time, an extra year or so in grad school, usually you can get it. You know, you might have to teach or you know, TA or something like that, but it's it's possible. Or you go do a postdoc. <laughs> you know, like there, there are ways that you can get ready for the next stage. Tenure is kind of the the end, you know. And so if I'm not ready in five years, then I don't get tenure. And then i have to I to start all over again or figure out a new a new place. And so it's that like precariousness. That technically has always been present, but feels very different as, as a faculty member, given all the other things that you're now balancing. Much more service, uh, all these other things. Although I did so much service in grad school that I don't really notice the difference in the amount of service that I do because I always did service. So that in some ways has been helpful, um, but there's still, now there's, there's more weight to my decisions. Is this the right decision? Am I wasting my time when I should be doing research that type of
0: type of stuff. Very good thoughts to uh, think about. And, you know, it's a good reminder that you now are working for somebody else talking about hierarchies. You're no longer a grad student, free to say whatever comes to your mind. And now you have to kind of report up. Uh, Before I forget, I wanted to share your faculty profile page at Berkeley Haas. The good information here about your research interests, some of your working papers, Uh, and then Uh, I have to uh, talk about moors as well. So management of organizations. And so we'll put these websites up there as well. And then you have your own uh, personal page. And I like this page because you gave a a good summary of kind of your background and then your lines of interest that you uh, uh, worked on, your hierarchies, your second line, working on stereotyping. And and, uh, then you get into your projects. And I love this space here because it's not only... You, you decided to put some graphics here as well instead of just, here are my lines of research, just some more lines, and then we just uh, browse through them and, and go past them almost. So I liked this aspect of it, and then some of your publications, and then some upcoming talks and recent talks as well. So I loved your page. It was nice to uh, uh, go through, easy to follow. And uh, I was impressed by your CV, even though that one person wasn't impressed as much by your CV because you didn't work with one particular person. So I'll I'll give you a buy on that as well. But a follow-up question for you is, you know, now that you're at UC Berkeley, um, many of our audience members, listeners, uh, people viewing the podcast as well, may not consider when they're applying for their first position, whether it's a research one, two, or three institution, and the corresponding obligation, expectation of research. When I was going through school, it was called Pop, Publisher Parish. And so I'm not sure if that's still out in the you know out in the field today, but knowing uh, where you're applying and the demands on you, hey, you're gonna have a course load of two classes, but then you have to do a lot of research or one class and a lot of research. If you want to teach a little bit more, then seek that out and and um, don't make the mistake of applying to, oh, I love Harvard. I love you know all these other in- in schools because I'd love to be able to be a faculty member there. You have to recognize what their uh, what their needs are and what the expectation is. So when you first uh, started, what were some of the expectations that they laid out for you in terms of coursework, publication, research? Tell us a little bit more about that
1: no problem so the <laughs> the tenure track is usually very opaque it's who knows? you know they're like do good do, do good science the best science <laughs> that you could science and hopefully that's good enough the beauty and i do mean beauty of being at a public institution like the uc system they are much more transparent than most places so mm-hmm. um you know, I also know exactly when I'm going to go up for merit increases. You actually get merit increases, uh, which is not always true. You know, in a lot of places, in order for you to increase your salary, you have to get an outside offer. Not true uh, within the UC system. You go up every two years as an assistant professor and you go up every three years. Once you make associate and they re- evaluate you and they say whether or not you're going to move up half a step or a full step. Very. I think the military actually uses this like similar mm-hmm. steps. So from that perspective, very clearly laid out, know exactly how much money I'm going to make at each step. Great. Um, the other expectation that I was explicitly told is my research matters. I must publish. I absolutely know that. Um, and that teach, but teaching matters. So that's an, that's one difference at a professional school than at other, At perhaps at, if you were in the faculty of arts and sciences, are all most of our customers are paying customers, in a very like mastersy way. And so they do care about teaching. Um, teaching, if you're a great teacher, but a terrible researcher, you're not getting tenure. If you are a terrible teacher and a great researcher, you might get tenure. And that like asymmetry is just something that's, that's true at a lot of R1s. So in terms of my teaching load, I teach Oh, I teach. That's a good question. So I teach co-teach with the other um faculty the PhD seminars. So we all co-teach it. Um it's kind of hard to say exactly how much I teach because it's years mentorship and all that jazz. So that's 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 that. Um I teach in the core, which means that this is like the core curriculum for the MBAs. And I teach this course called Business Communication in a Diverse World, which is a core DEI course. So core DEI courses. Uh, to MBAs scare the crap out of me, not going to lie, especially as a queer black woman teaching it. um, It's really intense, but it was for seven weeks. And Mm -hmm. that was the extent of my teaching. So um, the way that Berkeley also does teaching is through this thing called the IP system, very convoluted, but it allows you to sort of mix and match how you want to do teaching service research. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't care. You owe, I think, 19 IP credits. They don't really care how you how you amass them, you got different ways you can do it. You could do some service that might be two IP credits. Uh if you teach this class, okay, well, that's three IP credits. But if you teach this other class, it's four. You want to teach this easy class? Sure, that's one. You know, and so you you can sort of figure out, of course, with the, the help of your chair. Um, and so it's I appreciate that system because again, very, very trans transparent. So uh from that perspective, my the things that I was told to do is that I must I must publish and that I should not do service, but that's like not in my heart and not my personality. Like I'm not gonna just not do something because I'm not supposed to if I think it's the right thing to do. And so I think a lot of scholars of color sometimes face that where they have to balance out, how do I do things that I, that, that I value without losing my eye on the prize That will allow me to stay in this position long-term to do the things that I really care about. That balance is hard. I don't know if I've necessarily struck it yet, but I have a few more years to figure it out.
0: (laughs) Well, it's it's nice to hear that they were pretty transparent uh, in the UC system uh, about not only your salary, but expectations, even though they didn't say when I was going to grad school, when you, when I applied for positions, they said, you're expected to have five publications per year. Two of them have to be in a top journal, you know, that sort of stuff. So they laid that out back then, but it all depends on the department. And so here, it sounds like just, just do your research, just do research, and then they'll evaluate you later. So, okay.
1: But you have some, so the, the, the nice thing also about UC Berkeley is that every tenure line that they extend, they expect to tenure. So it's Mm -hmm. not that I am competing with other people, you know, it's, it's my own line. And so from that perspective, I can look at my colleagues who've recently gotten tenure. They are under the same expectations as me and use them as a benchmark. And if I use them as a benchmark, it's very doable. You know, I would probably say probably publishing anywhere, you know, somewhere around three papers a year, Ideally with some students towards the end, ideally in some top journals, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's much more holistic. Uh, I I would say it's not, they don't, they're not uh paper counting, which I appreciate.
0: Okay. And now that we're talking about some of the research, I mentioned it earlier, Google Scholar, feel free to go there. We'll include this uh, link as well. But a lot of your stuff, you know, one of the top ones, investigating hair cues as, mechanism under, as a mechanism underlying Black women's intersectional invisibility. So I know you mentioned intersectionality before. For the rest of our audience, kind of describe what do you mean when you're talking about that and using that word?
1: So intersectionality refers to the fact that various systems of inequality, you can think about racism, sexism, um, heterosexism, um, they don't operate in a vacuum, they operate in a interdependent fashion. So, you know, one great way to think about it is if you think about socioeconomic status and race, you know, if you are poor, that's, uh, gives a set of discriminatory experiences, but if you're poor and also a woman, for example, the types of violence that you're going to experience by being really poor and being a woman, it's different, than the types of violence you would experience being porn and being a man. And mm-hmm. understanding that those differences are qualitative in nature. So thinking about like sexual violence of perhaps being homeless versus perhaps physical violence of being homeless as a man, et cetera, et cetera. It's understanding that the, the ways that we understand the world, we need to think intersectionally because when we talk about women, the question is, are the things that we're studying for all women? And at least in a lot of my work, the answer is no. Uh, and it shouldn't, right? And it's not just a pure, let's add Black plus woman to get Black women. You have to take history into consideration because the history of being a Black woman in the United States is different than the history of being a Black woman in South Africa, which is different than being an Asian woman in the United States. And so all those things are race plus gender, but how they manifest um, is nuanced. And in, in a lot of my work, what I've been trying to figure out is, A, let's, let's map out the nuances. B, let's try to figure out, are there psychological mechanisms behind the nuance that we can then use to predict future nuance and then use that as a way of um, dealing with inequality in a more nuanced fashion? So that That's is... Not a-
0: Oh, I was just going to say it's not a one-to-one relationship. You have two different criteria, therefore, it's twice as difficult. No, it's not. It doesn't work that way. If you have, if you're, if you're African American, you're a woman, you're queer, or you're trans, or any of those. As soon as you add all of those, it, it's not that you're three times or four times. It it really depends on what. Area uh, or or category you fall in as well, and so I wanted to emphasize that because some people say, "Oh, of course, you're you're male, you're white, or you're female, you're you're black, or you're trans, and you're you know, or you're uh, Asian." Mm -hmm. Um, I I keep reading studies about you know more and more of these disenfranchised uh, groups that are experiencing all of these challenges that you wouldn't have thought they would. Um, um, and and it's coming out in the research now. So I, I like that you're looking at how they interplay, and I use that word as well because it. Uh, I, I grew up using that word more so than that. Intersectionality um, uh, is a nice word to use as well. So um, one thing that I wanted to highlight is I know that you've finished your first year. Uh, I saw the class classes that you're uh, um, teaching. And I know that social psychology continues to evolve. And so what do you feel are some of the most pressing issues in the field now?
1: Ooh. Well, I'm not even going to talk about open science and replicability. The reason for that is I don't think that that's unique to social psychology. Um, I Actually, I would say an intersectional approach. And part of that is... Because intersectionality, and I'm actually writing a review paper now about this, is that it's not just a theory in the sense like an empirical theory, it's also a way of approaching science. It's, hey, when I look at my sample, am I picking my sample with care? Am I recognizing that my identities matters for the types of questions and the way that I'm approaching my science? That is all a very intersectional um, way of doing doing research. And so I, I think that that is one of the biggest one of the biggest things that I think social psychology has to grapple with. The other one is, is again, thinking intersectionally, but on like a global level, like let's talk about the global South and how it's missing from a lot of my, our, our work. We've started to talk about weird psychology, but that's only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to who's doing work, who gets work published, why is the work published and how it's generalized. Um, And I think social psychology might could be a forerunner in that regard. I actually think clinical psychology is a bit better. Uh, but that's because they deal with people's lived experiences. It's like I'm literally looking at you and I'm talking with you and we talk through all the different aspects of your identities, but thinking how does that then play out in practice? I really think psychology could or social psychology could be uh one of the one of the 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 areas of psychology that can move the fastest, actually. So that's, that is, that's, that's what I would say. Okay. i can get a soapbox around intersectionality. I won't, but.
0: Are you, we're going to move on. I'll let you, <laughs> we can get back to it or have another discussion later on and, and do a two-year checkup with you. So see how things have changed. But I read and I saw that you were the creator of the Lot Planner. Are you still involved in that? And um, I'll share my screen and tell me a little bit more about the Lot Planner.
1: Oh, the lot planner. So the lot planner, it stands for life on track. Uh, and so when I, when I was in grad school, I used planners on the market all the time. Uh, and one planner in particular that I used was the passion planner. I thought it was really cool. Uh, the issue I had some issues with the passion planner and with a lot of the planners, actually, I shouldn't have said the passion planner. Passion planner is great. Um, but a lot of the planners are just not made for academics. Mm-hmm. That's the best I got. Um, they're made for people or academics have a particular, you know, problem in that they're trying to deal with the, the short term while also planning on the long term and medium term. And a lot of planners focus on one or the other. And so I um, was encouraged to bullet journal. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've heard of bullet journaling where you sort of plan your own things out, you draw it out. And I started to bullet journal and I probably did that for about two years before it got to the point where I no longer had time to draw my pretty banners and whatnot, but I needed the system that I had come up with. Mm -hmm. And so what year was this? 2017, I think 2017, 2018. I taught myself in design, converted my, my, um, my bullet journal into a planner, decided to give it a name. I was like, lot planner is cute, life on track. And then that's that. It was just for me. It was not for anybody else. So that first year, printed it out, was very proud of myself. Uh, it also, it looks nothing like it looked back in the day. I had a meal prepping, all these different things. I, I've since removed that. Uh, then I made it, I made it smaller. There used to be a smaller version. Again, no, nobody has seen this. And so probably that was 2017, 2018. Uh, I probably told folks like, hey, you know, I encourage everyone to figure out a planning system for you like don't be constrained by what's available look beyond and figure out from yourself like what do you need so it's also like a life lesson wrapped in to the lot planner it was the thing that i need is not available i could either use subpar systems or i can create my own and i created my own and then it, it was during it was during the pandemic so i probably at this point maybe sold two planners to my friends who love me 2018 sold two planners 20 uh, no 2018 sold two planners 2019 sold four planners uh 2020 rolls around we're all in a pandemic and then again I tell this life lesson I'm like hey make do do what you need to do you got it and people are like oh that's so cool that planner me you should try to sell it I'm like sure I'll, I'll sell again now six planners so I put up a little uh pre-order and when I tell you that I got 300 pre-orders lost my mind <laughs> <laughs> what just happened? This is not what I expected. I have a picture somewhere, probably at the beginning of that, that uh, Twitter account, versus me surrounded by boxes of, of package planners to ship out. And so I was going to leave it at that, but then more orders kept coming in. People were like, I would love to order this for my grad student. I had a uh, whole department's buying in bundles. And so I have tried to drop this planner because I am not a businesswoman. <laughs> I'm supposed to be a faculty member. It's not what I expected to do. But several people, when I've mentioned it, they're like, Kira, I, you, I, I need this planner system. You have to keep going. And so now we're in our third year of the lot planner. And now I'm trying to get it back up because I I, I went through the job market. I didn't have time for it. But uh, now we're, we're sort of back on, huh, back on track, life on track. And so that's that's my planner. And the reason why I think it's pretty cool is that it uses a sticky note system. So, you know, every there's project pages, there's like two years in advance. It's like very much so holistic of your your the personal and the professional and blending the two Mm -hmm. while allowing the type of changes that I think academics uh, need. They need that flexibility and it's built in. Exactly. So there's sticky notes. So um, that's a project next step. So if you have a project, you can put a sticky note on this page that dictates your absolute next step that you need to do. And mm-hmm. so from that perspective, uh, I don't know. I think it's I think it's pretty cool. I was also doing tips, organizational tips. You know, people are getting a lot of my uh, good thoughts for free. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep, yep. No, I wanted to bring it up because I saw it and I'm going, this is kind of cool. It's a. It's specific to the academic world, so to speak, and so it, yes. it helps you. So again, to your point, plan the way that works best for you. However, if you do want to use sticky notes, have some fun look at the lot planner and that's my little plug for you on the lot planner. So I
1: appreciate. It. <laughs>
0: um Kira, what what other personal or professional goals do you have uh in the future? Now that you have a year under your belt and now that you're moving forward, any other goals that you have for yourself?
1: Ooh, well, to learn how to drive. I have my first driving lesson tomorrow. So wow. uh <laughs> now I'm like really committed. This is my third time having a permit, just never did anything with it. But now it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn how to drive. I want how to learn how to skate. And really randomly, um, I want to have fun. So I've been, I really need creativity in my life. So part of the lot planner was also me learning how to use InDesign, but I used to do photos with my grandmother. And so the way that I have been... Um, Uh, more creative. These days, I've been making homemade cards. So that has been a lot of a source of joy for me. And so those are some of my uh, personal goals, professional goals. It's really um, figuring out as I I read this book called tenure hacks. um, And they talk about these mountains, and I always called it molehills. I don't really know why. But uh, to figure out what my molehills are, and and you're really only supposed to have one, I think I'm going to end up having closer to three. Uh, just because I do such different things. And so really just coming into my own as a expert in X field and feeling comfortable in that is what I'm hoping for the next few years. I, I study schadenfreude and empathy, and I would like to have done the research and sort of thought about it deeply enough that when people start to have questions about schadenfreude, like they come to me. And I think that that, that will feel like, yes, I'm, I'm making it in this chosen field of mine
0: so. well it's interesting and I, I you make mountains out of molehills and so uh, that's probably why you think of molehills right away you think of that term at the end of most of our podcast Kira we talk about and ask a few fun questions so the first one I usually ask is tell us something unique about yourself
1: mm, unique about myself so uh you people might have noticed I have two middle names so my whole name is Sakira Tierra Jolin Hudson I'm very proud of my name, um, and part of the reason why I always put all of them is that my favorite middle name is my second middle name, uh, which is a combination of my grandparents' names, Jonathan and Linda. So that's how you get Jolynn. So mm-hmm. uh, I love that aspect of of me, and, and you know, as a someone who's first gen, names are important, um, and so that's why you get my whole name on every single one, <laughs> everything I do, whole name, because um, so, that's something I'm proud of.
0: Well, cool. No, I didn't. I wouldn't have even guessed. Jolyn is a combination of two names. Yep. What is your favorite term, principle or theory and why?
1: Oh, uh, so I usually say this thing and I'm going to get it wrong. Of course, it's like street level bureaucrats, uh, which is a term in sociology that I came across when I was at the Harvard Kennedy School. And it just made so much sense. So street level bureaucrats are the interfaces between the public. And systems. So, like, when you mm-hmm. go to the DMV and you have someone there, they're a street-level bureaucrat, because these are the people who are directly facing with the public, but they're also the the arbiter of rules, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so if the DMV person decides to let you pass on certain things. They can they can change trajectories of your day, your, and sometimes even even a life. And but we think about these people as having no power, but they actually have a ton of power. And so, you know, when we talk about Let's change systems. We don't have to change individual people's attitudes. I'm like, street-level bureaucrats are the one exception to that because these are the people that actually have a ton of control about how the laws get actually implemented on a day-to-day basis. So when I found that out, I learned that term. It it just blew my mind. So that's one of my favorite terms, street-level bureaucrats.
0: You need to keep that in mind when you go for your driver's license.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be nice to that street-level bureaucrat. Don't you worry.
0: Yes, definitely. Do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of social psychology?
1: Any more advice? It's, honestly, remember that a lot of great ideas started out from observation and life experiences. Me search is, is actually how all research happens. Don't let anybody uh, tell you any, any differently. And so to really... Oh, like lean on your unique experiences because there's a reason why I think psychology is having an explosion of intersectional work. There are more scholars for which intersectionality comes up naturally. I right. don't think that that's um, you know, a coincidence. And so thinking of that people who might think, oh, I don't belong here, A, you absolutely do. And B, we actually need you because these research ideas that you are going to naturally come up with are going to intersect with existing theories in really cool and fun ways. And that is how the field uh, is going to move forward.
0: If you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do?
1: Okay, this is really, really bad. Um, If I had the time, money to do one project, Low-key, I would go get a PhD in, in social linguistics. Um, but part of that is, I think the study of languages is really cool from a social perspective. Um, so I, I'm doing Duolingo for Mandarin. And I, I did a little bit of Mandarin in, in college and in high school. And so I, rem- you know, Mandarin is a pictorial language. And some of the things I've always been thinking about is like the word for good is a woman with a baby. Uh, there's one word for peace that's a roof radical with a a, a a woman underneath it, like a woman in your household brings you peace. And I can't tell if this is just me as an English speaker trying to learn this language and seeing these connections or like the, the word for Africa actually translates into like backwards continent uh, mm-hmm. and things like that. And so I've been thinking about when you learn a language where the etymology is either like baked into the word. Because it's pictorial and you learn these radicals sort of separately, and then they kind of get combined in, in unique ways, how does that then impact like your thought about that particular topic? And I think maybe English could have something similar. Like the, I think about destiny's child. Technically, when I, you first heard that term, did the, the thoughts of destiny and child come together? Then then slowly but surely became its own entity. Does it still have the tendrils of the other step? Who knows? So if I could do any sort of project, I would probably do a study of like feminism and whatnot in uh, four people who speak Mandarin, both who learned Mandarin as a second language and as a a first language. And I just feel like that would be so much fun. Really random, but that was that's the that's the truth.
0: <laughs> well, I I can actually relate because my as we were talking before we started uh, recording. My background is in interpersonal communication. And so that would come into play. The etymology of a lot of these different words, phrases, and how they have evolved throughout time is is very interesting. So Kira, is there anything else that you would like to discuss or bring up in this podcast?
1: No, this has been great. Thanks for having me.
0: I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. It's been uh, an enjoyable journey, learning more about what you've experienced, your journey moving forward as well. I wish you all the best, and maybe uh, another year or two, we'll reconnect and see how things have changed over that time period.
1: Sounds like a plan.
0: All (laughs) righty. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.